Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to... Make sure that you are spiritually prepared to study the Word tonight and to uh, worship the Lord as we study His Word. And uh, then I'll have I'll open in prayer. A few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, it's encouraging to know that in your omniscience, you have known about every circumstance, every trial, every test, every... Uh, disappointment, heartache, and, and uh, encouraging thing that we run into every day, that you have designed a perfect spiritual life for us. You've given us promises. You've given us a sufficient revelation to uh, teach us all the principles we need to know in order to live a life to glorify you. And, Father, the issue then is just our volition, our desire to study your word, to make it a priority, to make its application a priority that this might be real in our lives, that we might come to understand more fully what it means to live today in light of eternity, to truly think about where we are headed in terms of our eternal life, uh, in terms of your plan, that we might be prepared to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we study these things tonight, may we be encouraged as we reflect on the examples of those who have gone before. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 11 introduces us to the next section in the book of Hebrews. Section 5 focuses on, the main teaching is on the importance of confidence in God's word and God's plan. That is really the, uh, the import of the uh, faith that is being talked about here is a confidence and an orientation to our uh, our future destiny, and the impact that it has on the way a believer lives during time. And these, all of these examples that we see in chapter 11 focus on that. So uh, chapter 11 gives us the teaching in relationship to the importance of uh, doctrine, the importance of an ongoing walk by faith. And then chapter 12 gives us our first exhortation in chapter 13, our second. So we'll get into the first verse here, verse that is well known by many people, often thought of as a definition of faith, but it really isn't a definition of faith itself. It's more of a description of its reality and significance in, in the life of the believer. It begins by saying, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. We'll have to stop and think about what that means a little bit. The evidence of things not seen. These two ideas are written in a way they they are parallel uh, to one another, and so they complement each other in bringing out a, a key idea uh, related to the uh, confidence, the the certainty that doctrine has in mind the thinking of a believer. But first we have to understand this concept of faith. And so we ask the question just what is faith? Faith has various meanings in the Bible, and we have to understand these in different uh, contexts and different ideas. The main thing, the basic meaning of the word pistis, in the, in the scripture for faith is just an understanding that faith is understanding something and then accepting it to be true. 
Understanding something and accepting it to be true. That's just a really basic definition. Understanding something. You can't believe something you don't understand. Now, you may not understand uh, whatever it is you're believing exhaustively or comprehensively. You may not come to fully understand all the nuances of what it is you're believing, but you can't believe something that you really don't understand. And I've had people, witnessed uh, people over the years, uh, listen to something that a pastor teaches, and they say, oh, yeah, I believe that. Well, explain it to me. Can't even come close. You, well, how do you know that you believe it if you really don't understand what that statement meant? You can't believe something you don't understand. That's where you get into mysticism. Uh, so faith means you, it's, it's thinking. It's not emotion. It is an intellectual process. You believe with your mind. You understand something, and then you decide whether or not it is true and that you believe it uh, to be true. So we get into various verses on faith. I just want to go over about uh, five or six verses on faith to begin with to just show some of the different ways that the Bible uses the word faith. Uh, first of all, Romans 10, 17 is a very important passage. Uh, we don't need to look at the context because this represents a universal principle. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So you have three parts here. You have faith, hearing, and the Word of God. And if what that shows you is that faith is related to the Word of God. That is what we believe is something that comes from the Word of God. So it is related to something that is written or something that is stated. Now, this is going to get us into a discussion in a few minutes on something that some people really have a hard time understanding. I've sort of been surprised by some people, uh, some pastors I've talked to who have gotten into this discussion, and they don't really seem to understand this. And that is that whatever happens when we believe something, we are ultimately simply believing a proposition. Well, wait a minute, you say, I'm believing in the person of Jesus. Have you ever met him? Did you talk to him? Did you meet him on the road somewhere? Did he come into your house? You've never met Jesus, not in that sense. You have only read what other people wrote about Jesus. And the only way you know anything about Jesus is on the basis of certain historical accounts written in the Bible about him. And you are believing what they are telling you about Jesus. There's not a direct encounter with Jesus in, the, in, in that sense, not in the same sense that Peter uh, was called by Jesus when he was uh, coming in from a fishing trip one day. Not in the same sense that the two disciples on the road to Emmaus uh, recognized that this uh, stranger they thought that they didn't recognize with him was actually Jesus. We've never had that kind of empirical uh, encounter with Jesus Christ. We only know him by virtue of the statements that are made in the Scripture, and you believe those statements to be true. Now, that means as a result of that, we enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But in a lot of cases, when people talk about Christianity, you'll hear folks say that, well, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? As if that's really important. Judas had a personal relationship with Jesus. Didn't do him any good. See, it's not about having a personal relationship with Jesus. It's about believing Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who died on the cross as a substitute for us. So we'll get into parsing out some of that a little bit so you understand it a little more clearly. Don't think I've lost my mind. So faith comes by hearing the word of God. It is propos- That's why we, you'll, you'll hear uh, theologians, pastors talk about the revelation of God is propositional truth. That is really an important statement. I remember hearing that before I went to seminary. And I really didn't understand that because I had no background in philosophy or logic at the time. And that's really a very important statement. And it means that, that a proposition in logic is any declarative sentence. Remember back in the sixth or seventh grade when you learned that there were four different kinds of sentences? There were declarative sentences which described or told something about something. 
John went to the store. Uh, the car is red. These are declarative sentences. An imperative is a command telling somebody to go to the store. Uh, then you had uh, interrogative sentences where you had where you had um, a, a question, and then you had exclamatory sentences. Those are your four basic kinds of sentences. Well, a declarative sentence is roughly a proposition. Jesus is God. It's either true or it's false. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. It's either true or it's false. God created the heavens and the earth in six days. That's either true or it's false. A proposition is any statement that can that is either uh, verified or falsified. Not a question. You can't a question. Who are you? You can't prove that to be true or false. You can't take a command. Pray without ceasing. Is that true or false? It's neither. It's a command. So a proposition is just a simple declarative sentence that can be proved to be true or false. So you either believe it to be true or you believe it to be false, but on some basis. There's got to be some reason to believe something is true or something is false. If there's a reason, that means that faith is rational and not irrational. So that means that it is a process of the, of the mind. It's a process of intellectually apprehending or understanding something. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We hear various statements made in the word of God, and then we have an option to believe them or to reject them. That's one way of using faith and relating faith. Faith is directed towards the word of God. Then Romans 14.23, we have a little different scenario. Now, the context of Romans 14 talks about the, the, the weaker brother who has certain, um, certain beliefs about what he can eat, what he shouldn't eat, what he, some things he could do and some things he shouldn't do that may or not be necessarily true or accurate on the basis of Scripture. But he has been bred into him by his culture, background, friends or family, religious orientation, something like that. And so he gets offended when or upset when another, when some Christian around him eats what he thinks he should, they shouldn't eat or drinks what they shouldn't drink or does something he thinks they shouldn't do in the area of uh, doubtful things or uncertain things. So Paul states, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? If you think it's wrong to eat um, pork, and you haven't been taught differently, you haven't really come to understand grace yet that there's no law, and you eat pork, but you're still not sure, you're condemned. That's sin. Why? It's because your conscience is telling you that it's wrong, and by eating it, you're violating your conscience, and you're setting a terrible precedent of ignoring your conscience. That's why it becomes wrong, and it sets that precedent so that later on when things really are wrong, you've already established a, a practice of self-justification in choosing to violate your conscience. So it, it begins that process of desensitization, and so that's why it says that, because he does not eat from faith. So faith here is not the act of trusting as it is really talking about a body of truth, a body of doctrine. Uh, he hasn't been taught yet these principles related to uh, dietary law, and so he's not making his decision from the position of strength, in, in other words, a knowledge of doctrine. And then Paul says, for whatever is faith is not from, whatever is not from faith is sin. Now, if you look at that at just sort of a, an initial first blush analysis, you think that this sort of gives you a definition from faith. And I, I thought that for a while, I thought, taught that for a while, but that really doesn't fit the context and it's not really a good definition of faith. Because he's using faith here in the sense of that body of truth, that body of biblical teaching. And so if it's not, if it's not consistent with biblical teaching, then it's sin. That's what he is saying. Not the act of trust, but the body of truth. If it's not based on the truth of Scripture, that body of teaching incorporated in the Scripture, then it's, then it's sin. You're violating scriptural teaching. So it's used as a general sense for what one believes. 
Then we see another example of this same kind of usage in, in Romans 16:26. And he says, But now being manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. And there with the article in front of faith, it has that same sense as a body of doctrine, a body of belief, a body of propositions, a doctrinal statement, we might say, or a creed. Or uh, uh, in older times, they used to talk about a confession of, of faith. And you, so you had various creeds that came out of various denominations. And these were basically doctrinal statements that summarized the belief system of that, uh, that denomination or that group. So... Uh, obedience to the faith is obedience to a set group of propositions or belief statements. This is the same way in Galatians 1.23, but they were hearing only. This is uh, talking about the Jews uh, in Damascus, or in Jerusalem rather, hearing about Paul's conversion. Uh, they were hearing only that he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. So see, once again, you have the use of the word the faith in terms of a set body of doctrine, a group of teachings that are related to a particular, a particular group. And then Ephesians 4, 5, so it uses it in the same kind of way, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So all this is to show, number one, that, that faith is related to the word of God and it's also used to summarize the body of doctrine that comes across in the Word of God. So it's not just the idea of simply believing or trusting, but it also has to do with what is believed, what is trusted, that body of doctrine that informs a Christian as to who he is and what his destiny is. Now, having said all that, let's look at some basic points on faith. First of all, we saw from Romans 10, 17, that faith is a response to what is taught in the Bible. Clear statements that are articulated in the Scripture. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus died on the cross uh, as a substitute for your sins. So it is related to belief that Jesus is God, belief in the Trinity, belief in various other doctrines. Faith is related to what is taught in the Bible. Second, Faith is an act of trust. That's basically what faith means. It means to trust in something or someone, or it refers to a belief that something is true. So belief is an act of trust in something or someone or belief that something is true. Now, when you're trusting in someone, I use that phrase because that's what you find in the Gospel of John, the verb pistuo, to believe, plus the preposition ace, plus the third person pronoun him, believe in him. But how do we know who he is? We only know who he is by the statements of Scripture, not by what you see, but only on the evidence of what an eyewitness has said. And so we're trusting in a belief that something is true, that statements in Scripture are true, and those statements in the Scripture point us to a person that's, that's true, but we don't go directly to the person. We only go believe in the person indirectly through those statements in Scripture. So it is an act of trust, an act of trust. Now, I remember when I was a kid in Sunday school, and you, this is not unique to any one group of Christians, but you often hear this, that trust is believing that this chair will, uh, will hold me. Now, do I believe that chair will hold if, if I don't sit in that chair, do I still believe it will hold me? Yeah, but you know, that's such a common, common illustration people use in Sunday school. Trust means that you believe that chair will hold you, so you sit in it. But see, whether I sit in it or not, I still fully believe that chair will hold me up. Sitting in it is not necessary. That really starts to subtly introduce a second act of works into belief. You see that? You don't, I can believe it's true and that, there's not a shred of doubt in my mind that chair will hold me, but that doesn't mean I have to sit in it to prove it. Okay? So faith is just the act of trust, belief that something is true. Third, faith is an act of the intellect. It's not an act of the heart. Some people say, well, they had a 
head belief and not a heart belief. It was just all intellectual. Now, there is a sense in which people may believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus is God and that the Bible teaches that if you believe in him, you'll have eternal life. Let me rephrase that. The New Testament teaches that Jesus is God, and the New Testament teaches that if you believe in Jesus, you'll go to heaven. Michael Medved, who is a news commentary or or pundit on, has a radio talk show, is Jewish. He's a very conservative Jew, and he does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but he believes that the New Testament teaches that Jesus is the Messiah, and that the New Testament teaches that if you believe in Jesus alone, you'll have eternal life. He's even corrected people who call in and think and express Christianity in terms of works or doing good. He'll say, no, 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 that's not what Christianity teaches. The New Testament teaches there's no works involved. Now, he doesn't believe that, but he believes that's what the New Testament teaches. See, there's a difference there. Isn't that, in, that's subtle. So a person can believe that the Bible teaches something, but not believe what the Bible teaches. Okay, and there's a difference. And so some people get, you know, they, they hear the gospel all their life, and they, they think, but they've never really made it a personal, I believe Jesus is the Messiah. I remember having a kid growing up at Camp Penal, had been a camper of mine for several years, and one year to spring camp, he came up to me and he, he said, uh, he said, Robbie, I just really understood the gospel and I entrusted Christ. I said, well, you've been a, you know, you've been working, you've been a worker every summer and you've been coming to camp for years and you're actively involved in the youth group. It, it, you know, it just blew everybody away. His parents were saved. His brother was saved. Three months later, he was killed in an automobile accident. But it was really clear that he had, he, he was saved. He really, he came to a point where he understood the gospel and that it was about him believing that Jesus died, died for him. So, Faith is, it's an act of the intellect. It's understanding that this proposition is personal, that Jesus died uh, for you and that you believe in him and you'll have eternal life. It's, it's an act of the mind because we understand something and we believe. We don't believe with our emotions. Belief is not an emotion. Belief is not um, an act of, of uh, some organ other than our brain. Our heart just pumps, uh, pumps blood. We don't have a heart belief. But you'll hear people make that distinction that so-and-so just has a, uh, an intellectual. They're so afraid that somebody is going to get too intellectual or too academic. And so they want to introduce emotion to it. But faith is not an emotion. It's not a feeling. And faith does not mean commitment. You look it up in the dictionary. It doesn't mean commitment. You don't commit your life to Jesus. That's not what believing in Jesus means. It means believing, accepting that certain things are true about Jesus and that it relates to you personally. Also, the fourth point, biblical faith is not faith in faith. It's not faith in itself. Faith is not a power. That's mysticism. That's also what you get in the word, what's called the word of faith movement. That is a heretical movement that came out of the uh, out of the Pentecostal movement, starting in the post World War II period, and that's very popular in a lot of the so-called non-denominational churches back in the 60s. Non-denominational meant that you and independent meant that you were not affiliated with the denomination, but that got co-opted by a certain segment, uh, initially by a certain segment of Pentecostal charismatic churches because they were getting kicked out of the assemblies of God and they were being kicked out of the uh, Pentecostal denominations because they were buying into the Word of Faith uh, movement, which was declared heresy in the early 50s by the assemblies of God. And so these people got kicked out. So they started churches that... Uh, uh, taught this word of faith, gospel, prosperity, gospel, all of that was kind of mixed in, into the name it, claim it. All of that was part of that whole word of faith thing that faith was a power. And that's why they started becoming independent churches, but because they were heretical, uh, rightly seen as heretical by the uh, uh, major charismatic and Pentecostal denominations. So faith is not faith in itself. We do not believe that faith uh, per se 
has power. You just have to believe. Believe what? It's not just belief that has power. It's what is believed. It is the object of faith. So it is what is believed that is important, not the act of simply believing, not the act of faith. That's what I mean by that. So if you someone believes that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, and their sins are fully paid for, and the other person believes that uh, if they believe in that Jesus died on their sins and they need and and between what Christ did on the cross and their baptism they're saved, those are two different objects of faith. One of those is saved, one of them isn't because of what they believe. One person is it's faith plus works, it's Christ plus works, and the other one it's Christ alone. So that's what is believed is what's important, not just simply uh, simply believing. And from that we recognize that faith is something anyone can do, whether you're a two-year-old infant, two-year-old child, to a 95-year-old senior, you can believe. You believe all kinds of things. You believe all kinds of contradictory things. We all do. We believe whatever uh, we want to believe. We don't believe things we don't. We believe things about life that we wish it were a certain way, but we believe all of these things, sometimes with evidence, sometimes without evidence, sometimes it's just wishful thinking, but we believe all kinds of things. Faith is something anyone can do. The act of faith in Jesus is, is only distinguished from all the other acts of faith by the object of faith, by what it is that we're believing in. We're believing Jesus alone saves by virtue of his work on the cross. So faith is something anyone can do. Saving faith is saving not because it is a separate kind of faith, but because it, it has, but because the faith is in the correct object. That is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Some people will say in Lordship salvation, which is contradictory to grace, will say there are some people who believe Jesus died for them, but it's not really saving faith. You can believe in Jesus and not be saved. And then they'll use a passage like John 2, when the, there were, after Jesus performed many signs in the uh, uh, temple, and he was confronted by the Pharisees who uh, and he said, if you tear down this temple, I'll raise it again in three days. And he performed many other signs. And it says, and there were many who believed in his name, pistuo ace anima, which is the same phraseology that you have, uh, pistuo ace, all the way through, through John as the condition for salvation. Believe in him. So there were many who believed in him. And the next sentence says, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. So some people say, see, if they were really saved, if they really believed in Jesus, if they were really Christians, he would have trusted them. Just because somebody's saved, you're going to trust them? Think that's going to make them a better cardiologist or a better uh, dentist or a better car mechanic just because they're saved? No. They can be an out-of-fellowship carnal, lazy uh, worker who just, is trying to uh, get patience on the fact that he's a Christian. And there are people who do that. But that doesn't make them any better or any worse than anybody else. So uh, Jesus didn't trust himself to those Jews because he knew they had a political agenda. They wanted to make him the Messiah. And so he wasn't going uh, to, they weren't educated enough beyond their salvation for him to trust to them, they still had the same old political agenda, which wasn't his agenda, so he wasn't going to trust himself to them. Didn't have anything to do with their justification stance. Sixth point is that faith refers to a set of beliefs or a body of doctrine, what a person believes. So it's not just talking about faith in terms of what we would call phase one justification, what a person needs to believe in order to have eternal life, but Faith also refers to that entire body of doctrine related to the spiritual life of the believer after salvation. So we have to distinguish in passages, is this talking about the kind of faith that's necessary to be justified before God, or is this talking about faith in terms of how a justified uh, believer 
lives now that he is saved. So we have to look at it this way. Point six focuses on the fact that faith often refers to that body of beliefs that is unique and distinct to Christianity. So point seven. So faith can refer to either the phase one belief in Jesus as our substitute, or it can refer to the phase two trust in the promise, the power, the provision, and the procedures of Scripture that we follow in order to grow spiritually. Now, that's important because when we get into Hebrews 11 here, we talk about by faith Abel, by faith Abraham, by faith Moses, by faith. Are we talking about phase one, justification faith? Are we talking about some aspect of phase two, spiritual life faith? Well, it's very clear they're already justified. We're talking about phase two, spiritual life, sanctification faith. So, That is going to impact us because as we have studied so many times, breaking it down in terms of the uh, problem-solving devices, that really incorporates, encapsulates the basic struggle uh, of, of the believer's life because we're all involved in a war. From the instant you trust in Christ as Savior, you didn't know it, but you got drafted into the Lord's army and you're in a massive spiritual warfare and Satan's drawn a big target on your butt. And no matter what you do until the day you die, that's the way it is. So you you have two options. Are you going to be a well-trained, well-prepared, mentally focused Christian soldier in spiritual warfare? Or are you going to be a lazy, non-combatant, just hoping somehow people don't see that you're hiding down in the trench somewhere? Okay? So... The kind of faith that you need in order to be successful in spiritual combat is faith that is informed by the body of truth of Scripture living on that, on that basis. So this is what we see under point number eight. The faith in Hebrews 11, 1 and following is more than phase one, but refers to that collection of phase two beliefs that motivate and propel us forward in our spiritual growth and enable us to to surmount the obstacles, the problems, the challenges that we face in life, that when we're down, when we're discouraged, when we're tired, when we're weary, what enables us to get up and keep going? It's because we understand what the end goal is. We understand what the end result is. And as long as we keep focused on the end result and where God is taking us and what the plan is, then we can handle whatever gets thrown at us between now and, and phase three and our promotion in order to, because we know it's designed by God to prepare us for, uh, for our future with Him. Okay, that takes us through kind of an introductory orientation then to uh, faith and to understand uh, the basics in the discussion, the debate about what faith is all about. Now, one other thing we ought to understand just to bring it into our awareness is that historically coming out of the Reformation period, Faith, especially in Reformed circles. Now, you know what I mean by Reformed circles. This is the branch of Protestant Christianity that traces its heritage back to the French and Swiss Reformation period. French Reform, uh, the French-Swiss Reformation period was, uh, uh, the French-Swiss Reformation was influenced by John Calvin out of Geneva and the, the German-Swiss Ulrich Zwingli out of, uh, uh, out of, uh, where was he? Basel? What? Zurich. Zurich and, uh, Bullinger out of Basel, these areas. So, um, that's Presbyterians, Congregationalists, many Anglicans, historical, not present. Uh, these all came out of that reform, Dutch Reformed, the Huguenots, Scotch Irish Presbyterians, all of these various groups were influenced by uh, Calvinism all the way down to dispensationalism, Dallas Seminary, because uh, Dallas Seminary's heritage, Lewis Berry Chafer was an ordained Southern Presbyterian evangelist, and you had uh, uh, Schofield was a congregational pastor, First Congregational Church of Dallas, which is now Schofield Memorial Church. Uh, John Nelson Darby, though he was Plymouth Brethren, he still had a lot of Reformed uh, doctrine in his 
in his thinking. So in this stream of thought, uh, faith was often defined as ha- having three things. This is in the Latin, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Now, I'm not smart enough to have figured this out. Uh, Gordon Clark wrote a wonderful book, at least the first part of it's wonderful, called What is Saving Faith? He never clearly defined what the content was by the end of the book, but he did a great job in the first half of the book of defining what faith was and what it wasn't. And he pointed out that there is a hidden redundancy in this definition, that first of all you have understanding, notitia, we have to understand something about what we believe. Now, when you're three years old, you can only understand something about sin and Jesus and his death on the cross to a certain level, but that's enough at the level of a, th- of a three-year-old. When you're 20 years old, you can understand the meaning of those things at a different level. But you have to understand something about what it is that you are believing. Now, a census means to assent to something as true, to agree that it's true. Now, this is where a lot of evangelicals stumble, because at this point what they want to say is, well, you're just saying that it's just intellectual. Well, if it's not just intellectual, with what else do you believe? Well, let's just think about it a minute. Do you believe with something else other than your mind? No. Okay, so assent means to agree that something is true, not to agree that the Bible says it's true, but to agree that it is true. That goes back to what the, the distinction I was making earlier. Not simply to believe that the Bible says God created everything, but to believe, to agree that, yes, that is true. That's what agreement means. Uh, I like to use the illustration because you know I, I'm not real good with numbers, and I have never liked to balance a checkbook. And when I would sit down and balance a checkbook and I would get the bank statement out and I would write down all the checks and add everything up and you, you know, you cross reference your numbers so that when everything is said, you've reconciled your checkbook, the number that the bank says you have in the account equals the sum of what you've worked through all the calculations. Now, when in my, the way I do math, when those two numbers agree, then I, I quit. I rest. I put down the pencil. I don't say, oh, well, you know, I must have made a mistake. These numbers agree. I've thought that a few times because it's so rare that they do. But when they do agree, you rest. You don't keep working. You say, this is true, and I'm relying upon this to be true. That is what agree or assent to something being true actually means. To add trust to that is a redundancy. Because to agree that something is true means that you are saying it is true. I believe it's true. So Gordon Clark and his work on What is Saving Faith did a tremendous job. That hit the, that was published in the late 70s just as a lot of the um, battle over the free grace movement. Some of Zane Hodge's works were just beginning to come out. And when, when many of us read uh, Gordon Clark's book, it was just like somebody parted the skies and we could see straight to the throne of God. It was just such a blinding flash of the obvious that faith means to agree that something is true. But the something that you're agreeing is true has to be the statement that Scripture makes, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and they died on the cross for your sins. You have to believe that. So and when you when you do, you rest. You quit working. You just rely upon Jesus as the one who, who is the one who saves. So that is uh, how we should understand faith. Once you add another element of trust, then it really did open the door historically to subtly bringing in sort of backdoor works and the whole perseverance concept of lordship salvation into the, into the equation. So let's go back to our verse and look at how it begins. Faith is something. Now, faith is the substance or evidence, the substance of things hoped for. There are various ways to translate. This is really an interesting word. And here we go up on the screen, a word that you will think is, sounds familiar. It's the Greek word hypostasis where we get our English word, we talk about the hypostatic union. And the hypostatic union refers to the union of two 
essences or two substances in the one person of Jesus Christ. 100% deity, 100% humanity, united together in one person. So it's the union of two substances or two essences. So that's the idea of a hypostasis. So it has a wide range of meanings, though. It can mean the substantial nature. Now, if you haven't had philosophy and you haven't studied Aristotle, you may not catch all the nuances of, um, of the word substance when it comes to Greek thought. In Aristotle's thought, you had two things. You had substance and you had attributes. Attributes were things like color and size and temperature and height and width and texture. All of those things are are really the attributes. So you look at one of these chairs, and attributes are it's about three feet high and about uh, 20 inches from front to back and about 20, 24 inches wide and has four legs and they're metal. All those things have to do with attributes, but you can't see the substance. All you can see are attributes. The substance is this thing that's somewhere in there that makes it a chair. It's almost invisible, and then these attributes are packed on it, and that's what makes it visible. So that idea of substantial nature really refers to the essence of a thing. And guess what? We ran into this same word back there at the beginning in Hebrews 1, 1 talking about Jesus being uh, the hypostasis of the Father. He has the essential deity of the Father. So it refers to substantial nature, substance, essence, or actual being. And then the second meaning is that it refers to confidence, conviction, or steadfastness. And that's the idea and the way in which it is used here in 11.1. So faith is confidence. Faith is, it's not just substance. Substance, that's the idea of sort of a foundation to something. That's this sort of this imperceptible thing that lies behind the attributes. But faith is the confidence, the conviction, uh, the steadfastness of something. In uh, the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology uh, states that uh, one of the meanings is confidence, expectation. See, that brings in the idea of hope that we'll see here in the next word. Confident trust in what is hoped for. And so uh, another meaning is uh, the idea of a pledge or security, a guarantee, an assurance uh, one writer thinks that it ought to be translated that faith is the guarantee of what is hoped for, and I'm not sure that's the right uh, right nuance there. It has more the idea that that the faith is that which it reflects the absolute certainty within a believer's soul, his core conviction, certainty, absolute reality that what God has promised will be fulfilled. In other words, the promise of God becomes more real to the believer than any experience or or anything else. God's word is absolute truth, and there is this settled, certain conviction that goes to the core of your being, the foundation of your of your person. And so, that would express the idea best. So, faith is a confidence. Faith is the confidence of things hoped for. Now, just before we move on from finished confidence, let's think about how we know some things. We know some things are true because we can reason to them and we believe our reasoning is valid. Think of uh, Descartes' statement, I think, therefore I am. Solid reasoning, because I'm thinking, that means... There's something going on there inside my head of some sort, but there's self-consciousness there. And if there's self-consciousness, it means I must exist for me to have this self-awareness of thought. So we know that's true. But not everything we think can be true. We can be self-deceived. There could be other problems. That was one of the things that Descartes thought through. So well, maybe I'm just deceived in all of this. But no, because I'm, I'm thinking, whether it's right or wrong, just the very act of thought means I exist. But we're believing, ultimately behind the act of reason, we're believing that, that I can have, I have faith in my rational capabilities to come to some measure of truth. Other things we know because we experience them. We believe our senses tell us the truth, and we, 
can accurately interpret the data. We can tell the difference between hot and cold, unless, of course, you put your hand on dry ice for about 30 seconds, and then you put it on something hot, it's not going to necessarily feel hot. So you have these various things that can confuse your senses. But we believe that our, behind that, it's not just that we have experienced something, but we believe that our interpretation is correct. So faith lies behind that. And we also believe, when somebody tells us, I don't go outside, and you come running in here and say, you know, it is raining out there. Or you come running in here and you say, there's a tornado out there. Okay, let's get down. I don't have to run to the front door and look out there to see the tornado. I am believing that you are honest and trustworthy and what you say is reliable. And so I am believing the authority of your pronouncement. And that's the third, that is comparable to what we do in the Christian life. We have the eyewitness account of God. And we are believing that eyewitness account. We have the eyewitness account of the disciples, and we're believing their eyewitness account that it is true. And so we believe that. And so we have absolute confidence in that. And faith, then, is the confidence of our uh, hope, of what is hoped for, literally. Not the things hoped for, but what is hoped for. What is hoped for, it, it casts us forward, that that. A confident expectation. It looks to a future destiny. It's, as I often say, it's not a sort of wishful optimism that I hope we get a cool front that actually cools things down the next few days. Probably won't, but it's wishful optimism. To I hope that uh, I will get to heaven. Well, that's a certainty. I have a confident expectation. Now, hope is a major theme that we have seen all the way through uh, Hebrews. Hebrews 3, 6 says, Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence, different word for confidence, and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. In other words, if we live without giving up our future expectation. Hebrews 6.11, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. Hebrews 6.18, by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. All these are talking about this confident expectation of our future destiny. Uh, Hebrews 7.19, there's the bringing in of a better hope. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. So hope is a key theme in throughout this epistle that we need to focus on that eternal destiny and, it's, it's, uh, and the certainty of it. So faith, faith in the believer is a confidence, a certainty in what is hope for. We are certain of what our destiny is. So that is going to impact how we live today because we know what the, what God, where God is taking us. We know what the future holds. We know what, what the plan is. We live today in light of eternity. Now the second half of this says that, um, faith is the, uh, evidence of things not seen. The evidence of things not seen. And that brings in this word, uh, Elenkos. Sometimes this word is used of conviction. To convict a criminal in court means to present what? Enough evidence. Now, here's that word evidence again. We just ran into that in relationship to substance. Faith is the evidence or the substance of things hoped for. Now, some translations will put it that way, that this is uh, faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So that's how Alenkos is translated here, sometimes it's as the act of presenting evidence that something is true. So faith is a certain conviction that something is true. We agree that it is true. And now we're saying it again in a different way. It is the evidence of something that is true, the evidence of something that is true. It is not the truth itself. It is the evidence that something is true. Now, what is evidence? Think about that. What is evidence? Look, look it up in a dictionary. Evidence 
is a sign or an indication of something else. So if you walk into uh, let's you walk into an apartment somewhere and you see about two gallons of blood on the floor, there's evidence that somebody is dead. You don't see the body, but you see the evidence that can only mean that someone has died. Someone has exsanguinated and they are no longer alive. So it's a sign or an indication of something else. So you have a believer who has this settled conviction in God uh, that, that what the Scripture says is true. That is evidence of something else. It's evidence of something that is uh, not seen, something that is yet future, something that is uh, that is invisible. So faith is the conviction or uh, the evidence of something that is unseen. Now, another thing that we can say about evidence is it's something that bears witness to something else. So that if you go to a crime scene and you see DNA, you have your DNAs at the crime scene, then that means you were there. Uh, doesn't mean you killed them. It might, but if you see your, your DNAs there, your fingerprints there, that's evidence that you were, you were there. It witnesses to something. Look at the next verse just for, see where we're coming. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony, New King James says, or good witness. The word, the verb there is martyreo, where we get our English word martyr, which relates to giving a testimony or, or being a witness to something. So you see how these words all are connecting together. We have faith is the evidence. It bears witness to something, and another way of saying it. It bears witness to something. So what the writer is saying here is that a person's beliefs, the body of beliefs that informs a person's present decisions, um, because the future is as certain to them as if it had was already in the past. So that's what he's talking about is this body of belief that a person has that determines their present decisions because as far as they're concerned, the future destiny with God is more real to, is more real to them than, than it would be if it was already passed. So God's word becomes more sure and certain to us than anything in our experience, and so we can face persecution, you can face the loss of your job, you can face the loss of the death of loved ones, you can face any situation in life because your relationship to God is more real to you by virtue of your understanding and knowledge and belief in Scripture than any anything else. So this is the point in this first verse. It just states a very strong principle of faith that is the body of belief that a, that a that these uh, victorious believers had is the evi- the substance of things hoped for. It tells you about what they're looking for, and it is the evidence of things not seen. So we'll learn something from it. And then in verse 2 we have, for by it, which is faith, because we have a feminine pronoun, demonstrative pronoun here that refers back to the uh, feminine of pistis in the first verse, for by it, that is by faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. That's really a bad translation. It is really poor because it indicates that the elders received a test, somebody else, something, somebody else's testimony or something else. I mean, it's just very confusing. Actually, in, in the Greek text, it's very simple. It says in this, the the elders, holy presbyteroi, and then you have one verb uh, from the aorist passive of the verb uh, martyreo. Martyreo means to confirm or to attest something. It has to do with evidence again. We, didn't we just talk about that? To confirm or attest something on the basis of personal knowledge or belief, to bear witness to something or to be a witness. But what's awkward in translating this is martyreo means to be a t- give a testimony, to be a witness, to witness. Those are all active voice senses of the verb. But when you have it in the passive form, that means the subject, the elders, receive the action of the verb. 
And that's just an awkward, awkward thing to express. So we have to come to an understanding of the basic meaning of the word. And the basic idea there is, I just took that dictionary definition straight out of uh, uh, Bauer and Gingrich, means to confirm or, or test to something. So the elders, meaning the, our, our spiritual ancestors, were attested, were confirmed, there were evidenced, you might say, although that doesn't make a lot of sense in English, but you get the drift, were evidenced by faith. In other words, their faith is what was seen. What wasn't seen, which is what's missing from this verse, is the core conviction of their soul of the certainty of what God promised them. That's what's not seen. And the faith is the witness to that. The faith is the evidence of that. And the faith is the means by which they give evidence of their certain conviction of God's plan and purpose for their life and the promise. So the elder, as I put it down at the bottom, the elders are our spiritual ancestors, the Old Testament heroes, the future hope, the certainty of their, their future hope, was attested or confirmed by their faith. But it doesn't say the certainty of their hope within the text, but that has to be it's supplied or implied by the context with the previous verse. And so that brings us to verse 3. Now, verse 3 is the first in a series of doctrinal beliefs or persons in the Old Testament running through the chronology of the Old Testament to talk about the importance of what we believe, the body of belief. And the first thing is creation. How about that? Creation, and this whole argument with creation and evolution isn't just some distraction that some people want to think it is. It isn't just something, creation is just saying, well, that's what those Old Testament people believe because they didn't have modern science. What this is saying is at the very foundation starting point of that body of beliefs that is going to inform your your thinking about your future destiny is understanding the past. And if you don't have a good understanding of God's creative actions in Genesis 1 with a literal Genesis, then how can you have a literal revelation, a literal future? If you can't believe what God said about the past, how can you believe what God said about the future? In other words, if you don't have a good protology, you can't have a good eschatology. If you don't have a good beginning, you're not going to have a good end. You have to, the two go together. If you screw up Genesis, you're going to screw up Revelation. If you screw up Revelation, you'll screw up Genesis. So we have a starting point there. And verse 3, we read, by faith we understand. And the verb there is noeo, from the noun nous, meaning the mind. So faith, again, as I've pointed out already, is an act of thinking, an act of intellection, not emotion, not feeling. Uh, Noeo means to grasp or comprehend something on the basis of careful thought. So By faith, we come to understand. Faith is knowledge. It's not like, you know, Bertram Russell says that faith is an irrational belief in something. Contradicts itself. Faith is rational. Faith is understanding something on the basis of careful thought. It means to perceive, to apprehend, to understand, to gain an insight into something, to think something over with care, to consider it. That's the idea of of Understanding, So faith is based on thought. That's why we analyze Scripture so we can come to a better understanding of what we believe. And we'll stop there and we'll come back and pick up verse 3 next time, dealing with the, the object of our understanding that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. So we'll start with that uh, not next week. Next week we will still have Bible class Tuesday night. Prayer meeting, 7.30, Bible class at 8, Thursday night, Bible class at 8. David Dunn uh, will be here 
and uh, he is uh, the pastor of Grace Bible Church, so he'll be here, to, and he's available to cover for me on Tuesdays and Thursdays, so that's going to be good, and uh, he'll be here uh, next week. So nothing changes except I'll be in California. So you can pray for me while I'm out there. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be challenged with the importance that of our belief system and what we believe and how that, uh, how we view the future, our future destiny with you impacts how we live today. And may we be stimulated, encouraged, and challenged with the fact that we are preparing for our eternal destiny by, the, by virtue of uh, what we believe, what we do today that we are to live today in light of our eternal destiny to rule and reign with Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.